Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Hello, welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a wonderful guest on today's episode, uh, Mr. Andre Norman, known to many as the Ambassador of Hope and author of the new book of the same name. His experience and expertise is what empowers him to speak about and create training programs for families in crisis, substance abuse, teen drinking, um, re-entry, ex-offender, gangs, prison reform, and mentoring. He travels to schools, churches, and community centers around the world to serve as a mentor and friend to youth and community members alike. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you both. Andre, we are absolutely ecstatic to have you on today, um, and uh, we want to get started right away um, by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your story, a little bit about your, your personal background, your educational journey, and how you got into the work that you're doing now. Um, my personal background is similar to a lot of brothers and sisters in the country. Um, grew up with parents who were in trouble, um, didn't get along, a lot of domestic violence in the house. I lived through the busing crisis of Boston, going to school, having people throw rocks and sticks at me at a first grade level and call me out of my name routinely. And then we come through the busing, we come through domestic violence, and we come to the public school system itself that wasn't equipped or didn't care to equip itself to educate somebody with a different learning style. So I was placed in what is called now special needs. Back in the 70s, it was called a dummy class, where you just put people that you just wanted to cast off. And what I know now about them building prison cells based on third grade math scores, so they knew hundreds of years ago where I was going. Everybody knew but me. Nobody told me in the third grade, you're going to prison, buddy, get ready. Because had, had they told me that, I'd, I'd have lived my life differently and prepared better. But um, I went through bad schooling in elementary level. I make it to middle school. And when at middle school level, I found out that I'm poor. In elementary school, Everybody looks the same. We play in the playground. Nobody's asking any questions. Middle school is about fashion. It's about fitting in. It's about um, yeah. all those wonderful things, what you have and what you can show, not who you are. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have and I couldn't show, so I was nobody. So my first parlay into criminal activity was to sell marijuana in the park after school, not to be a tough guy, not to be famous. I just don't want to get laughed at anymore. So I sold weed so I can buy the cool things so I could be accepted in school. And that one choice put me on a track that took me into full-time criminality, um, carrying guns, robbing drug dealers, you name it, I did it. And at the age of 18, I found myself in prison. And I'd love to tell you that I wound up there because nobody cared about Andre Norman. And that would be a lie because I can give you countless teachers who try to intervene in my life. I can give you countless coaches who try to intervene in my life. I can give you countless adults in the neighborhood who try to intervene in my life but I didn't have the wherewithal 
to actually receive their love and their attention because I was stuck on what my parents had taught me. And the things we learn in the house that we don't take outside, we don't trust people, we don't engage with people. And those things, amongst others, prevented me from receiving the help that so many people try to help me, try to give me. So I find myself in prison, and when I get there, of course, I'm nervous, but it turned into a reunion of all my friends from the dummy class, all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends from juvie, the guys I see fight with or fight against at the movie theater over the girls. We were all there. It was just a big reunion. I knew a third of the prison my first day. So for the first six years of my sentence, I did what everybody else did. I sold drugs, I fought, and I carried a knife. And I wanted to be the baddest of the bad like everybody before me. And six years in, I realized that I was a king of nowhere, that I spent all this energy and effort to be the top guy in a prison system that meant nothing to anybody. It was all like the Wizard of Oz, just going down this yellow brick road to nothing. And when you get to the end of the yellow brick road, which I did, I pulled the curtain back and I saw the wizard. It was all fake. It was all a myth. And I said, this is what I've given my life to because I had a chance to be the number one guy. And I saw what it was. It was all a fake and it was a false. So I decided that day I didn't want to be the king of nowhere, that I wanted to be something other than that. And I started looking around at who I was and where I was. And I realized I was in a maximum security penitentiary with too many years to count. And I said, this is where I want to end up because it doesn't make sense to be here if I no longer want to be a psychopath. So I first said I want to be free. But then I looked around, the whites, the blacks, the Spanish, um, the guys who worked in the church, the guys who worked in the kitchen. Everybody got free came back. So I came to realize free doesn't work. I don't want to be free. It's a trick. So I said, I want to be successful because successful people don't come to prison. So I said, I'll be successful. I picked a school where successful people come from, Harvard. So I go to Harvard, I'll be successful in the story. Everybody thought I was crazy. And in the end, I always had to walk that walk by myself. So I designed a plan to go from maximum security segregation to Harvard Law School or to Harvard. And I started GED, counseling, anger management, therapy, went and taught myself the law, fought myself, fought my cases on appeal. Instead of selling dope on the yard, I started getting knowledge on the yard. And I stayed focused for eight years. For eight years, 20 hours a day, I was about the business of getting to Harvard. Everybody else is trying to get to the gym to get first winners or trying to get to the yard to get a bag of dope or try to, whatever the thing was, I was trying to go to Harvard. And they got their goals and I was on track to mine. When I first walked out of prison after 14 years, because I reversed the cases, I reversed my lifestyle, and the parole board was willing to take a chance on me, prison, parole office, youth center. I went into a youth center 90 minutes after I got out of prison, and I had a conversation with some young black boys and told them why they were going to jail. Not because they were black, not because they carried a gun, not because they smoked weed. They were going to jail because people let them down, mistaught them, and hurt their feelings, and now they're acting out. They don't know how to comport their emotions. And I was going to teach them how to comport their emotions so they can have a better life. And I started doing that. Then probably like a month in, somebody asked me to talk to the girls in lockup. I don't know nothing about being a girl, but I went to the girls' unit anyways. And I started talking to the young ladies. And the young ladies, molestation, prostitution, domestic violence, self-esteem, not understanding the menstrual cycle, having to go through the body adjustments, having to look pretty, having the hair. And mother's boy- my mother had boyfriends. None of my mother's boyfriends thought I was cute. But these girls were being touched by the mother's boyfriend. And when they tell mom, mom kicks them out and keeps him. So I didn't understand. But I came to understand that being a girl was 10 times harder than being a boy. 
And I started helping the girls. I became de facto dad to a whole building full of young ladies who have been traumatized. And I work with the girls unit and the boys unit. I'm doing gang outreach. I'm definitely reaching back onto the penitentiary. And somebody asked me to go talk to white kids. I'm like, white kids? White kids ain't got no problem. Go to a white school. They got the same problems. They drink, they smoke, they have sex, they got bullies, they got kids that don't fit in, they got special needs, they got parents who don't pay attention. I was like, wow, I'd have never thought white kids had problems because I grew up watching Leave the Beaver and Partridge Family and 90210, and they never had a problem at the end of the show. But right. that's all I knew of white people. And I judge the same way we think white people judge us on the shows that we see, we judge them the same way. And I was judging them based on Brady Bunch. And the Brady Bunch never ended with a problem. Right. So to me, white kids don't have problems. And I was wrong. So that's when I got to the point I said, anybody calls my phone, I'll help them. And I got a call from some people in Guatemala. And they said, well, can you do a Zoom call for our kids? I said, what's a Zoom call? We're going to put you in front of the computer. We're going to put our kids in front of the computer, and you're going to talk to them. So how about I just show up? They said, we can't afford to bring you in. I said, I'll get myself to the airport in Guatemala if you can pick me up. I spent six days on the ground in Guatemala training and teaching. Um, from Guatemala City to Antigua and every, every place else in the middle. Then I went to Honduras and I went to Colombia and I went to Costa Rica. I went to Spain. I, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Next year I'm in Australia and I'm in Sweden. I'm in Germany. My phone just kept ringing and I just kept showing up. And opioids became an issue for white kids. I started helping white parents understand how to do outreach to their kids. I started helping black parents understand how to do outreach to their kids. I started training teachers and police and corrections officers. And that's just what I've been doing for the last 20 years of my life. And in 2015, Harvard recognized me with a fellowship at the law school. In 2001, London Business School saw fit to put me on as a consultant to their education department for executives. I've been there for over 20 years. And I've just been working and doing what I do best, bringing about education. And in this last round, I, I run a prison program in South Carolina because men died and they didn't know how to fix it. So you have an ex-gang leader running a prison block in South Carolina. It's the first time in the country, and our program has zero use of force, zero assaults, zero murders, zero weapons, zero anything. We've got all the top gang leaders in here doing and being better. And they're being recognized around the country for the great work that they're doing, showing that the alleged violent people can be nonviolent and interventors if you give them the chance. And since... I worked in Ferguson, and I've been working with Michael Brown Sr. for five years because I'm still his mentor. And we helped him go from being a distraught dad to being a forgiveness coach. I just got called based on – I've been getting calls from all my white friends based on what's happening in Minnesota. And I had to ask myself, what am I going to tell – what am I going to say to white people? Because white people right now are stuck. And I thought about it, and I reflected on it. And for 400 years, we've been wanting to have the conversation – to eradicate the tension between whites and blacks in this country. So I've spent the last two months talking to every white person I can, trying to educate them on understanding the black experience to move us forward. Wow. Uh, talk about a, an incredible story. And I keep hearing this theme of um, kind of like redemption and really how you turned your life around. For us as educators, you know, we see students who come in from all walks of life. And, and like you mentioned, trauma is, is really universal. Um, what do you, what would you say to teachers or what do you say to teachers who perhaps have students that they are struggling with and they feel like 
that there's nothing they can do because they will not change where you clearly are an example that that people do turn around what the first thing that i say to teachers is you have to understand that the person standing in front of you is not the person that you're dealing with the person that's standing in front of you is a person that's hiding their shame hiding their trauma hiding their feelings from you so when you get to school it's a place of safety and it's a place of make-believe you're at home as a 12 year old being molested you get to school it's a safe zone you're home watching your mother do craziness as a 14-year-old boy. When you get to school, it's a safe zone. You're at home, there's no food, there's no lights, there's no heat. When you get to school, it's a safe zone. So when you get to school, you want to forget your reality and live in a fantasy of this little eight-hour block of normalcy. This is my normalcy. This is where I can be normal, I can be a kid. I don't have to fend for myself or protect myself or hide in a closet. I can come to school and be normal. So when a teacher sees a child, you're seeing that person living out of fantasy versus their reality. If you want to get to know that child, you have to get to know them outside of the school building, which is a difficult task, but it's doable. And I used to train teachers how to do home visits, to go to the house and visit the kid and see how they're living. And in the home visit, I'll give you one thing. I teach them, when you go in, there's three things you want to do. You want to sit in the kitchen first, and while whoever's in the kitchen, you say, hey, can I get something to drink? Make them open the refrigerator. Do anything to make them open the refrigerator. Because if there's no food in the refrigerator, the kid's not eating. Second, you're going to actually use the bathroom. Not because you have to use the bathroom, but because you want to see what it looks like. If the bathroom's dirty, the whole house is dirty. And the third thing you want to do is you want to go visit the kid's bedroom to see where they're sleeping. I've seen kids sleeping on floors, sleeping on couches, sleeping on broken furniture. And you want to get a sense of how this kid is living in that space. And then the biggest thing you need to know, you're going to visit the family with the child there. And when you leave, you have to show that child that he's no different than he was the day before. You can't say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry your sister's a drunk or your father's a crackhead or your house is shitty. I'm going to love you the same way I loved you yesterday. Because once you see their shame and you don't treat them different, they will bond to you because now that you get them, but you're not, you're not belittling them. You're not looking down on them. They're not a pity case. That you can love them through their problems instead of saying, oh my God, you're, so, you're a pity case. And so embracing their shame, they will embrace you. And most teachers don't get the opportunity to embrace the shame of the child. You only get a chance to embrace the fantasy of the child. So there are a lot of different mechanisms and trainings that we can do to bridge the gap to embrace that child's shame. And it's not Going to the home is one of multiple ways that we can actually bridge that gap. Yeah, Andre, that, that, that speaks a lot to uh, something that Lissette has brought up before, um, just thinking about that language, Lissette, and, and that shame that you felt in translating, needing to translate for your parents, um, and that teacher did not embrace that moment. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of power in what you just said there, um, Andre. I'm, I'm wondering, as you, um, you know, you've kind of already mentioned uh, this idea that um, you have helped anybody and everybody, regardless of, of race. However, um, you know, I do wonder, from your perspective, what role has race played in part of your formative years? Um, and... And in particular, obviously, this podcast is Black, Brown, and Bilingue. We talk a lot about the, the um, interactions between the Black and Brown communities. What was that like uh, for you, uh, maybe in school or your time in prison or otherwise? 
When I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, it's an extremely divided and racially charged city. Um, its history will speak to that. Um, what made Boston different than, say, New York or California is when they started hiring blacks to city jobs and state jobs, in New York City, there might be like 30,000 cops. So you hire 100 cops, you put up in the North Bronx, nobody knows. Nobody knows, nobody cares. California, you hire 100 cops, you stick them down and watch, nobody cares. And Boston is such a small city that they only had maybe 40 job openings every year. So they knew who was on the list to get a job. There's 40 job openings, they know the 40 names on the list. When they took three jobs and gave them the blacks, they knew exactly who didn't get a job. That's Johnny Flynn's son's job you took. When you, the, the secretary for the city hall, oh, that's Sarah McCullough's job you took. It wasn't just some abstract person on the other side of the town. That's what, that's what made Boston so heavy with the animosity and the drama is because every time a job was given to a black or Latino, they knew the specific person who lost the job. And that just made it personal. That's why a lot of the stuff in Boston was extremely personal because you had to go sit at the bar with the father of the guy who lost the job. And it's not like, well, it's some abstract part of the city. Boston's not that big. So it being charged, we can have all the conversations about the wrongs and the evils or the upside downness or the unfairness of white people. And their mistreatment of us goes back long before I was born. From the time these boats pulled up on the shores, they've been mistreated. So that's a given. That is fact and it's history. So what I'm looking at now in 2020 is how do I take that history and I make it better? I'm saying I don't want to, I'm not forgetting my ancestors who died. I'm not forgetting the trauma of me being stoned, not my great grandfather. See, people, oh, that was 20 years, 20,000 years ago. No, Andre Norman had stones thrown at him. Me. So this is in my lifetime. But I have a choice as an adult, what I want to focus on, solutions or pain. I've already healed my pain, so I'm not going to relive my pain in public. So let's talk about solutions. And I'm going to take the wisdom of the experience and share knowledge on how somebody else can get through. Because there's too much time spent on how did I feel getting rock stone at me? Not good. Now, how do we versus how do we stop the next kids from getting rock stone at them? So the way we stop that is we have to educate our counterparts. Uh, white people ain't going no place, just like we ain't going no place. So let's get to a place of, okay, education makes it equal. That's why we were forbidden to learn during slavery, because you cannot enslave an educated mind. So we have to get to a place of education makes it equal. Let's, let's get to educating our babies versus the lines between what didn't go. There's a lot of stuff that didn't go right for a lot of, a lot of centuries in this country. Mm -hmm. And I never want to overlook my Native American brothers who had it worse than blacks. I mean, we, uh, oh, blacks, you had it bad. Oh, my God, you were slaves. How about there was a whole race of people annihilated? So that, that keeps me humble. Mm -hmm. I mean, I believe me, I, we got it bad in this country, but we weren't the worst. We didn't have it the worst. We weren't annihilated. You know what I'm saying? We were sold. We were raped. We were hung. We had a whole generation of people annihilated. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not going to overlook that. So I definitely shout out to all my Native American brothers and sisters who are right now on reservations throughout this country and not thought of. So I don't know what the language is. Well, we have black, brown, and bilingual. Well, we definitely need to extend our hand 
to our First Native brothers who are here and still struggling in silence. Agreed. And education is such a big key. Like, like you said, you know, how are we going to educate our, our students? Um, and you kind of alluded this, to this when you talked about how in third grade and, and reading scores, and that has a direct correlation on um, how many jail cells are, are, are built. What are your thoughts on the school to prison pipeline? The school to prison pipeline is real. And that's the most important thing that people need to understand. It's not a concept. It's not a fairy tale. The school to prison pipeline is real. If you walk around any prison in America, state prison or county jail, and you ask the prisoners, where did you go to school? I'm going to guarantee you 98% of them will say public school. 98 to 99% of people in state and county prisons went to public school. So we know where they're coming from, but we're not trying to solve the problem. If you don't educate a third grader, he can't read, write, and count, it's a given fact that by the time he gets to high school, he'll drop out. We have dropout rates well over 50% in many cities. And once you drop out of school, the law of the land or the jungle still exists. You must eat. That law will never leave you. I don't care what you do or what you say. The law of you must eat will exist. And if I'm an 18-year-old young man or if I'm an 18-year-old young woman, I don't have financial means, I don't have a job, I don't have a place to stay, none of that matters because it does not override the you must eat law. And what I have to do to get food is going to happen. And whether it's prostitution for the young ladies, whether it's selling crack for the young men, I am not justifying any wrongdoing. We're just speaking to, you're going to learn how to sink or swim. If I throw somebody out of a boat in the ocean, you're going to do one or two things. You're going to sink or swim. And we're throwing people into the oceans of the inner cities, into these jungles, and saying, sink or swim. And they're trying their best to swim, even though it's the wrong way. Even though it's not most positive or he's not even legal. And they're gravitating to what they can reach. Not what the best option is. People go for what they can reach out and touch. They would love to go to Harvard. They would love to go to MIT. They love to go to USC. They love to go to U Chicago, but it's not in their reach. What's in their reach is crack. What's in their reach is prostitution. What's in their reach is giving up. So that's what they reach for. What's closest to them. And that's what they go with. So right now, we need to get to the point of saying the school to prison pipeline is legit. It's real. And once we acknowledge it, it's a thing that exists, then we can shut it down. Nobody really wants to acknowledge that it exists. It's like back in the 80s, no city wanted to acknowledge that they had gangs. Go back to the 80s, look at all the newspapers. Every major city said they don't have gangs. And because they denied it, the problem got worse. Until they acknowledged it, they wouldn't put together a gang task force. They wouldn't put together any programs for those type of kids because it doesn't happen. We need to acknowledge the school-to-prison pipeline is real, and then we can collectively work on it. Yeah, so I have, uh, as I mentioned, I, I am working locally with our state's attorney on a few different things. And um, Andre, I think to, to your point, um, one of the things that we have seen in our local community, and, and, and I'm wondering if you can speak to this as well. One of the things we've seen is we have a particular part of our city uh, that has a high amount of crime. And so the city's response has been to have a, two police cars sitting in that community at all times. 
Um, they've done this for years and the crime rate has not changed. So I'm wondering, you know, if, if you had the opportunity to speak uh, to, to city leadership, what, what is the suggestion that you might make to them? Because, you know, to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results, right, is, is what we call insanity. My first so, question is, are they expecting different results? Why do you think they're expecting different results? You just said that they're dumb or crazy. They're not dumb or crazy. They figured out through three mayors, two police cars sitting in the corner doesn't stop crime. They do it, evidently, not because I know them, I'm not calling anybody out, out, out of this space. It doesn't work. So if you do what doesn't work, then that's what you expect. You have empirical data, years of data, that show that this doesn't prevent crime. So their objective is what it is, not to prevent crime. So my first question to them is, do you want to prevent crime? I don't want to hear about the two cops in the car. That's not a discussion. Do you want to prevent crime is my first question, because if you don't, I'm getting on the plane. I'm not here to play games with you. I got a thousand things I can be doing in my lifetime. My first question is, do you want to stop the crime? Do you want to stop the killing? Yes or no? Fact one, I don't care about stats and how many, do you want to stop it? Now, when you say yes, then we say, okay, this is a list of things you're going to need to do. And it's going to be different than what you've been doing. You know why? Because the stuff you've been doing, ain't been working. So I'll give you a list of things. You don't need to fire the cops. Don't need to fire the police. Don't need to fire the security guards. Don't need to, nobody needs to be fired. Anybody can keep their job. But do you want to do something different? If you want, let me give you the plan. I, I came to the prison system. They had seven dead bodies on the floor, 30 wounded. And the director of South Carolina Department of Corrections, Brian Sterling, says, Andre, I need you to fix this. And my question to him was, do you want to fix this? I heard what you said, but I'm going to ask you. you. You saying it is not a yes. Do you want to fix this? Yes, Andre, I want to fix this. And we need your help. I said, fine. And he gave me the power and the position to actually impact change. We went from seven dead bodies on the floor to we've had one fist fight in 15 months. That man wanted the change to happen, and he, he implemented change. And there were some things that had to be done differently. There are some things being done different within policy, within code, and everything else, but we're, go we're going towards a different result. You can't hypothetically think somebody's just going to automatically shift into the space that you want them. If you want to end crime in Chicago, it's doable. It is completely 100% doable. But you have to first want it to stop. That's, that's, that's a great first question that, that I don't know that we always even ask, right? When we're thinking about change, I'm, I'm thinking right now, to be honest, as a principal, I, I, I'm got to go back to my building, ask my, my teachers, do we want better scores? You yeah. know what I'm saying? And, and cause if not, about, oh, let's get a new basketball gym. Let's get these trainings in here. No, no. Do we want, what do we want? If you don't know the direction you're going, then you don't know what to bring with you. If you leave in Chicago and I say, hey, let's go on a trip. What do you pack? What's your first question? Where are we going? Well, we're going to California. Lead a winter coat. Oh, we're going to Boston. Bring the winter coat. We're going south. Get some shorts. 
But if you don't know where you're going, you don't know what to bring. So you're going to be out of pocket no matter where you go. You won't be fully prepared no matter where you go. So do you want to make your school better? And then what specifically niche do you want to make better? You want to make the, the, I'm saying the entrance into the school better, the entry. You want to make the hallway safer. You want to make the classroom safer. You want to make the teacher's lounge better. So I, we've done a school turnaround in St. Louis. St. Louis had the highest crime in the country, had the worst neighborhoods, had the worst, worst, worst. We went in, and I did a Joe Clark at Roosevelt High School. There was one school there that was just the worst of the worst in the worst neighborhood, and it was a lady named Susie Spence, who was like my sister. We went in. She had already been there for five years, and she brought me in, and we worked together, and we turned that entire school around, one piece at a time. We didn't say we want to make the school better. We're going to make the entry and exit of the school safer and more efficient. We're going to make the classroom numbers more efficient. We're going to make the tracking of the kids more efficient, the accountability of the teachers more efficient, the accountability of people who are being suspended, the follow-up for this component. We went in and repainted the, 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 the staff bathrooms from the small things to the big things, but in specific silos, and we can see measurable differences. So what do you the, – the generality, we want it better? No, I ain't, no, no. No, that's not going to get it. Don't bring me in if you don't want change. If you want to play the game, dial somebody else's number. That is so relatable. You. Yes, that's, I mean, it is. And it, I'm sitting here going through the list of like, what are some of the things that I want to change? And, and yeah. Um, so you also do some mentoring and you talked about that. What do you think are the components of like a good mentoring program or how did you get started in doing that work? I got started mentoring because I had a mentor. Um, when I changed my life around, I started doing different things. I started going to classes and going to education and going to the library. I saw the effect that it had on the people around me who looked up to me. And I saw them trying to go to school now, them going to programs now. So I realized that my, my movements created other people's movements. That like a, a pond gets hit with a, with a rock, it's going to ripple. So when I hit my pond, it rippled into other people, and I saw that. But I was doing it on the strength of trying to fix my own life, not understanding how to fix their lives. And I, I found my first mentor. is a gentleman named Natan Schaefer. He's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and chaplain at the prison I was in. And when I met him, he was just solid in who he was and what he taught. And it wasn't the religious stuff that made me come to him. It was the fact that he was just an honest man who taught good stuff. And he taught me responsibility. He taught me ethics. He taught me giving back. He taught me sacrifice. He taught me all the things it took to be human. I didn't need, so for me, the great components of a mentor is caring, capacity, consistency. Those are the things that matter. Color is not on my list. Do you care about me? You have the capacity to help me. Are you going to be consistent in showing up? I'm saying the things that matter are the things that matter. Now, if you happen to be black too, I'll take that. But I'm not holding out for a black guy who's not going to be consistent, cares, or show or has the capacity. I want the person who can and will and wants to versus the person who just looks like me and feels obligated. So you want people in position who have the ability to help that person transform their life that can hold me accountable, you know what I'm saying? It has the courage to challenge me, you know what I'm saying? Not just, yo, Dre, we're going to fix this. No, I don't need that. I need you to tell me when I'm wrong. I need you to have the courage to tell me you're wrong. 
And my rabbi had the courage to tell me when I was wrong and challenge me to do and be better. It was never based on him looking like me or me looking like him. When you do that, you limit your options. You limit your options. You want the best person available or the best person possible, not the best black person possible. I'm saying I'm not sad because that might not be the best person. There might be a differential between the best person possible and the best black person possible. You might be getting number seven versus number 320. <laughs> nothing, nothing against my folks. I want the best person possible. And I build programs now and a lot of the former gang leaders and gang members and hustlers from around the country. When I get on the phone, I teach them the game of, how do you set up a nonprofit? How do you manage a nonprofit? How do you design a mentoring program? How do you create programs to impact kids? How do you host and be in meetings with politicians and rich people and foundation presidents? What is the protocol for moving in these spaces? Because nobody's teaching us how to move in these spaces. And it's not getting in the room, it's staying in the room. And it's not always about your story. I could have spent the whole hour talking about my story versus talking about how do we correct things and move things forward where people are being trained, just tell them your story. Now, put your story in the bag, man. Let's come up with some solutions. Your story is not a solution. So all the folks who run around here, your story is not the solution. So the solution is when you sit down, get the whiteboard and the paper out, and you break it down and look at the problem, look at what's creating the problems, and what can we do to offset the problems. My story will get you intrigued. My story will get your attention, but my story will not fix your life. So I'm not selling my story as a fix. And right now in Chicago, you have programs, the Violence Interrupters, you have Ceasefire, you have um, Faith-Based Initiative. All those started in Boston. I was on a call the other day, and it was people from around the country were all on this call, and they were talking. Hey, let's talk about the program they had. Every program, every program announced during that Zoom call started in Boston. Ceasefire came from Boston. Police, police, um, police and clergy collaboration came from Boston. The faith-based initiative, my wife wrote the charter. We sold it to George Bush in 2000. Facts. You know what I'm saying? Violence interrupters. I started that in 2000. Facts. <laughs> we go down the list. And so people are grabbing these programs and they're remaking them. And they're like the, the three years while one juvenile being murdered based on the Boston miracles. And you can Google Wikipedia. It's in the books. We're going back to 96. I'm hearing people in 2020 claiming programs like they're brand new. We was doing it in 96, homie. And it's not a competition. I'm glad you're using it. We want you to use more of it. We created a thing. I created a program called Proven Risk Youth because at risk and high risk was only two terms out when I came out in 2000. At risk and high risk is based on a zip code, not based on a child. So if you're a church kid and he's a gang kid and they said at risk youth, you both qualify because you have to live in the same zip code. I created Proven Risk Youth, which is based on the kid's criminal behavior. Because the foundations were giving money for gang kids. The agencies were taking the money because it said at risk, and they go get church kids. But kids were doing well. They didn't have to take the gang kid because the qualification to be at risk was just a zip code. So what I did was create proven risk youth, which, which was broken down based on violent crimes, history, and criminal acts. So when money came out for proven risk youth, you had to have the violent kid. You had to have the gang member. You couldn't bait and switch with a church kid. We've raised over $150 million for proven risk kids, of which I got none of. It wasn't for me. I wanted to make sure the money got to where it was supposed to go. So right now, there's this, I was on the phone, um, the mayor of Newark, 
And then we're all, we're all on the call. Everybody's talking. And everybody's doing their five-minute commercial about how great they are. I told the mayor, I said, listen, if you want to set up an epic center and you want to set up a command post in New Jersey, I'll give you the 20-year catalog of my work for free. Stop if playing you, because uh, if, if you in Chicago, <laughs> if you if you got a team with Chicago, I mean, if the mayor in Chicago says I want to be sent, I want to be the number one in the country in this, and I want, I will give you my twenty year catalog for free. Give it to you. I'm not going to license it to you. You ain't got to pay me nothing. I will sit with that man. If you want to make about bring about change, I will give you all twenty plus years of my work for free, and challenge anybody in the space to do the same. Mm. I've been around this planet three times. I've worked from Honduras and Guatemala to the, out in West Africa with child soldiers. I've got programs that make millions of dollars. I'm one of the top speakers on the planet. If your mayor wants it, I will give him every single program I have for free. If it's going to help, if he wants to save the lives of people in the city. I got to be honest with you. You're the first person that I've even heard say things like that. And you're right. We have a lot of people out there selling their story. And you just you just stretched my thinking. That alone is not going to bring about change. You need no. the action. You need the goals. You need, you know. And so um, that's really like you just caught me off guard. We need like, to be able right. to come into the schools, sit down with a principal, and look at his problem from the principal standpoint. Me growing up poor, me being in a gang, me going to prison, ain't got nothing to do with that man redesigning how his school is going to run. What kind of testing are we doing? What kind of security measures are we putting in? What kind of home visits are we doing? What kind of food program do we have? What kind of teachers' development days are we doing? What are we doing to handle the drug problem, the sex problem? My story is not going to fix that. I need to come into a room and be a social scientist and help this man who runs this school put together programs to save these kids' lives and strengthen and empower our teachers. So that's not somebody's story. That's social science. That's program development. I'm saying that's psychology. That's caring in real time. I'm saying and being able to understand how a school actually functions. Do you even understand how the city budget is set up? When people say, I need some money from the city, do you even understand how the city budget works? Ooh. No, you don't know how the city budget works. Why do they give you any money? I ask people all the time. If I gave you a million dollars right now, what would I get in return? Better kids, better city. Yeah, get out of here. Find a better spot. Find a better hustle. <laughs> I need concrete, t tangible measurables on what you're going to give. If I give you a million dollars, what are you going to give in return? What is the city going to see for this million dollars? A safer community is not a good term. That's, that's game. Stop the game. We're dying while we're hustling ourselves. This become a hustle now. Let's put together this team and say, we're the toughest guys in the city. And only we can reach out to the guys and give us the money. We'll go say, what well, shit, you ain't doing it. You ain't doing it. You ain't doing it. So if it's about getting it done, you ain't doing it. You need to be cut from the team. Because it ain't happening. <laughs> That's yo. how I feel about a lot of the equity work. <laughs> Andre, yo, I'm, I'm so hyped right now. I just want you to know, number one, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the energy right now. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons is because I can, I can tell the energy is sincere. Um, you know, because like you said, you, you could sell the program and make pad your pocket, but it's not about that. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. Let's do it like this. Let me help you out. Okay. You get the city officials together. I will buy my own ticket 
fly myself to Chicago, I will pay for my own room, and I will pay for my own lunch, and I will sit at a table for one, two, three, four, five days and design a city strategy to help y'all come out of this violence problem for free. And we will train whoever needs to be trained to help it get done. And I will go raise money for Chicago. Chicago ain't gonna give me a dime. I know millionaires. I got over 150 millionaires in my phone. And they ain't halfway millionaires. They real millionaires. And they will fund the fixing of Chicago. I can pick up the phone. I was on the phone to Mayor Jersey. Play, go to his um, Jersey's face. In, in, in the call with the mayor of New Jersey, the Facebook, they did Facebook Live. Go to the end of it. I said, listen, brother, I know the foundation president in New York for this foundation. I'll put you on the call with him so he can give you some money. I don't need your money. Mm. I'll Listen, I'll find money for Chicago. Chicago ain't going to pay Andre nothing. Those are my brothers dying. Those are my sisters dying. Those are people that I love. And I got white friends in Chicago, too. I got a brother named Mike that lives in Chicago. White dude, love him to death. He's my number, listen, of all the people in Chicago, my number one dude in Chicago is a white guy. Hands down. Yo, Dre, you rock with white people? You're damn right. Number one dude in Chicago is white dude. Mike's my brother, hands down, won't ever blink or share my back on him for nobody. Yeah. And nobody in Chicago closer to me than Mike. So I want to see Mike do well. I want to make sure his kids, my nieces and nephews, can walk through the city and never get shot by accident. Right. So you know, your energy is so like authentic and genuine. And that's something that we wanted to do is like we wanted to have these conversations because a lot of the times in these spaces and yes, you have to know how to navigate, you know, really stuffy spaces. But we want to just be, you know, authentic and keep it real. And I appreciate you keeping it real with us. Um, so we time is, is running out here, but we like to end every single episode with um one final thought that you would like to put out there for our listeners. I'm watching the NBA, WNBA right now. And they got Black Lives Matter on their floors. They got equality, all the rest of stuff on the back of their shirts. Um, but what are they doing for the kids in Chicago? Is this response to political pressure from social justice? In what are you doing other than putting Black Lives Matter on your floor? What are you exactly. doing? Exactly. It's performative. It's so, performative. again, what I need and what I want people to know is don't go for the okie doke. Don't let the NBA get off with putting some names on the back of a T-shirt and Black Lives Matter on the floor to keep people from protesting them. I'm not saying go protest the NBA, but that ain't it. If that yes, they sir. might be doing something else, but I ain't seen or heard it. If that's their response to black people dying, is putting a name on the floor and putting a name on some T-shirts, no. Right. That ain't. That's not acceptable response. Well, considering you got all our brothers on the court making you money and you're selling to us, we're the workers in the building, so we're generating this business for you. So if the best you can do is a T-shirt and, and, and a laminate on the floor, no. We want more from you. Now, Ace Hardware, we have to talk about them a little bit different. NBA, you're deriving your money off of 75% black players. Mm. We want more from you. NFL, I'm glad Jay-Z got a bag, but Jay-Z ain't black people. He's Jay-Z. Jay-Z is a wonderful businessman. I appreciate and applaud him and everything he does, but no one man speaks for the entire community. So I don't know the conversation Jay's having. I trust he's having ones that are going to benefit and push us forward, but we want to know what's happening. You can't do closed doors meetings. So if Jay, if they got, we don't know if, they, if Jay's in the room talking with Roger Goodell or not. They signed some kind of deal, but nobody knows anything. So that's the problem. There's no secrecy in this trying to help people stuff. 
And so it should be not, we don't need minutes of the meeting, but tell us what's going on. Maybe we should be giving Roger Goodell a hand clap. Maybe we should be out here calling him out his name. Stop with the secrets. Make people who are helping us speak to us. You know what I'm saying? Don't speak. Don't, don't talk up. Dudes from Connecticut gave me this one. No more about us without us. So there's a lot of that going on. The last thing I'm going to say is there are people out here right now representing Black Lives Matter. And they're running around. They're protesting. They're going left to right and everything else. And you get the whole different differentials on it. I work with Michael Brown Sr., who lost his son. And Uncle Bobby, who lost his nephew, Oscar Grant. I want to see the family members in these discussions. Everybody's talking about their family without the family members in the discussion. I want to see people who are screaming Michael Brown Jr., who are screaming Freddie Gray, who are screaming the rest of these names. Are you even engaging in their, in their families? Or are you just screaming these names out? Stop screaming people's names out that you ain't reaching out to. Mm. It's, to me, that's hard. You couldn't, it don't make no sense. Stop screaming people's names out that you ain't affiliated with. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to support the cause, you want to scream the name, embrace the family. Come on, embrace the family. Coretta Scott King died broke. Betty Shapaz died broke. But everybody was screaming Malcolm and Martin. Nobody reached out to their wives. What, what, okay, yeah, the movement, the movement, the movement. We, we get a celebration every year. The hell with a celebration. Their wives died struggling while we run around with a sign and a T-shirt talking about, yo, civil rights, civil rights, civil rights. No, no, how Malcolm's wife died the way she died? How did Coretta Scott die the way she died? Where, where's the people? Where's the people? If you about this movement, be about my mother, be about my wife, if I fall. If it's only about me, then it, you ain't about nothing. Be about the people in the struggle. Mm. I'm saying, no, I, it's, it's horrific. And I was not to do anything different, so I put myself in a group that we weren't there for their wives. And we're not there in total for the family members. They're just a byproduct of the scenario. They should be first and foremost in the scenario. Gotta be more than a hashtag. Gotta be more than a hashtag. If you want, I'll tell you what. I'll make a call, and I'll get you Michael Brown Sr. on your next podcast. And you can talk to the people who are fixed. He lost his son at the end of the day, right, wrong, otherwise. You need those folks on this podcast. Please. Andre does Andre. Let me bring you the family members so they can tell you about their pain and their struggle and how they see the world minus their loved ones. Right. And yeah, again. We want to do that. We, we always talk, like, something that really irritates me with education is we try to do these research, all this research on communities, and then we don't even bring, like you said, the people that we're doing this research on and talk about what do you need for your child's education. We never bring them into the room, but we have all these conversations about them, and they're not even in the room to hear it. Because they might mess up your research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Why bring the people in there who might say something different that you can't argue with? Right. Oh, my goodness. So if you want some family members who are directly affected and why we have Black Lives Matter, then we can do that. And if I could, I say this all the time. If I could, I would change the name of the movement. Because the way we're doing Black Lives Matter should be the families. 
to get to where people are, we need to change. Because we say black lives matter, and then some people say all lives matter, and white lives matter, police lives matter. And my response to that is, when we put up here on boats, and they could kill us, slaughter us, and sell us, our lives didn't matter. For 350 years for our slavery, they could slaughter us, kill us, sell us, we didn't matter. Throughout Jim Crow and post-Civil War, they could still lynch us, burn us down, Rosewood, um, Tulsa, we didn't matter. Throughout the civil rights, we've seen the horses, the dogs, the fire hoses, the punches trying to set up the table, we didn't matter. Throughout the war on drugs and mass incarceration, we don't matter. So I want the movement to be called, can, we ma- can, can Black Lives Matter Now? Mm. Because that speaks to what we're really saying, because some folks just don't seem to get it. My, my, I wanted to be, can Black Lives Matter Now? Because for 400 years, we haven't mattered. And for no time during the 400 years, white lives not matter. Did police lives not matter? So we need to reframe what we're saying because it's not going over well. Instead of saying, you know something? White folks ain't getting this. Let's adjust. They're like, let's make them get it. It's not going to work. So we need to give them the context of what we're saying versus saying, just get over it. So for 400 years and too many different errors, black folks didn't matter. So the name of the movement should be, can black lives matter now? With an understanding and a definition is shit them people down and make them understand so they can come on as allies and as partners to the movement. Why are we building walls instead of bridges? That's it right there. Okay, that we're gonna cut right there. We're gonna cut right there. Thank you so um, much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm.